0: My father is dead. My mother left me. Captain wants nothing to do with me. Now what? I said, I have nothing. I might as well be dead. I have nothing to fight for.
1: Hi, I'm Wayne Jacobson. And this is my friend Louis. The story of one of the most engaging men I've ever met and of the friendship that developed between us. It has transformed both of our lives and left us in grateful awe at the adventure of life on this little planet. As Lewis grew into his teens, he was becoming an accomplished boxer. He continued training with Captain Herrera and began advancing in state and regional competitions. The girl in his school, who didn't make fun of him when he started boxing, continued to catch his eye.
0: We were both uh, raised on the same little town. It was a small town, about two or three hundred people. I noticed that she was different. Uh, she wasn't uh, uh, into it. You know, she wasn't more well, like boy crazy, if you will. She was uh, always working and always taking care of her family. Since she's the oldest, uh, uh, the culture, uh, according to the culture, is that the oldest takes care of the, all of them, going down the line until the, the smaller, the smallest one. And her job was to take care of her parents when they were sick, to feed the children, to to uh, make the food and all of that stuff. So she was very different. We went to school together until fourth grade. After that, she stopped going to school because her, her mom became really ill. She started caring for her mom at home because the, uh, her dad had to work and provide. I didn't see her. She was always in her house. I kind of see her, you know, like as uh, so I was walking by her house and and uh, going to school. And I, I kept looking to see, just see if I see her. And um she she wasn't there. Sometimes she'll peek and see me and then she, she, she'll run back inside. And that's how we started. I remember one time I gave her a little card. I made a little card. I was like 12 years old, I think. She looked at it. Uh, she didn't even read it. And then uh, she, uh, she just grabbed it and walked with it. And she says, I don't have time for this. I have to care for my parents. And that kind of like uh, discouraged me. So I, I said, okay, well, she wants nothing to do with me, right? I keep doing my thing, you know, working, going to school. Uh, I stopped going to school at the age of 11. I finished uh, elementary and that's that's all you can get in that little town. If you, want further, uh, your, if you want to further your education, you have to go to the bigger town and that costs a lot of money. After that, at the age of 14, that's when I approached her again, and this time she was totally different. And on March 14, 19, 1988, she became officially my my girlfriend. We uh, were actually uh, we 14 <laughs> back then. It was uh, it wasn't very common. I remember going and talking to her parents about it. They they looked at me and says, "Well, you're a good kid." You know, they called me kid. I remember that. Um, you know, you, uh, take care of your, you know, your mom, your dad, you take care of the fields. So you're a good man. So, okay. See over there, you don't date. That's the thing. They don't allow you, you don't hold hands, but that's because you're not allowed to be close to her because if I touch her by her hand or something, then that, that's two things. The parents have to make the decision of cut it off or just marry her on the spot. You you court, you don't date. Not
1: till you get married or get engaged or what?
0: You can hold her hand after you ask for her hand in marriage and you have a date to get married. Then only you can hold her hand, but uh, you're not supposed to get any closer than that.
1: Do you remember Rafael, the stranger Louis met in the mountains near his home? He's been coming around again with increasing frequency in Louis's teenage years. He helps Lewis discover what it is to be a man, even though it differs greatly from the culture in which he was being raised. At 15, Lewis's father tragically dies of a sudden heart attack, and his mom takes his younger sister and comes to the US on a visa she'd applied for before her husband died. She wanted to visit her other children who had already made their way to California. Lewis is alone, and he will need Raphael now more than ever.
0: When I saw them the most, towards the end, it was when my mom came here. Your mom came to the U.S.? Yes, and, and I was left behind in Mexico, so I had nobody.
1: So your brothers were all gone. You had a younger sister at home. So the sister and the mom come to the U.S.?
0: And they left me in Mexico. All by yourself. Right. They left me in charge of one of my cousins, but they live in a different house on the same little town, though.
1: You're now on your own. hmm And you're finding jobs and whatever to pay for stuff. Right. Food and things. And then you saw him more after that, after she left?
0: Yes, almost every day.
1: And how how would you see him? Would you make an appointment and come over? Would you meet him somewhere? How, how did that happen?
0: No, I don't know if it was because the house was empty and nobody was there, but I used to see him at home a lot, up in the mountains, sometimes in the mountains and at home on the same day.
1: But never by prearrangement? You didn't prearrange a time to get together?
0: No, ne- never, never. He, he would just suddenly be there? He just happened to be there. Did you
1: see him appear out of thin air or did you just turn and he was suddenly there?
0: Yes. I never saw him appear like in front of me. Like, no, I, was, I will be looking this way and I turned this way and there he was. He used to startle me at first, but there was this presence that preceded him. I feel the presence and I knew he was there. So I wasn't startled. Before I saw him, I knew he was there. And when I turned there, he was. Did you think that was strange? No, I loved it. When I felt that, I knew that because I knew that I was going to eat. I knew that I was going to, if I was in pain or if I was in emotional pain, I know I was going to be comforted. I felt safe with him. Anytime I feel that, I knew that everything was going to be all right.
1: At this stage, you take to calling him Rafa, right?
0: Uh, Asael Rafa. Well, I used to call him Rafa, short for Rafael.
1: What kinds of things was he sharing with you?
0: Every time since I was a kid, okay? Used to get into fights. You just like fighting. You know what? Yes, I did. And he actually had to teach me there, too. He told me this. He says, look, if you're going to fight, he says, before you get into the fight, think about this. Is this going to bring me any benefit or is it going to benefit others? Is this for a greater good? And I said, what do you mean? To tell me about the gazelle, and I didn't know what a gazelle was. And all of a sudden, he opens his backpack and produces a book. And the book he shows, he'll say, This is a gazelle. So, and he'll tell me about the gazelle. He says, Look, when the gazelle wakes up in the morning, it looks at its hoofs and notice that has no claws. So, it, it it noticed that it cannot protect himself or, or, or scratch or to protect. So, and also looks at its mouth and notice that it has no fangs and it has no no canines. So what does it does? It realizes that it's really fast. The gazelle wakes up every morning with this purpose in mind that today I will not be caught. Today I'm gonna outrun the, the, the predator. Today I'm gonna outrun my enemy. Today I'm going to be faster than, than my predator because my life depends on it. And here we have the lion that wakes up and it checks his paws and says, has claws and, and that mouth has these fangs and canines. And it's and, and it looks around, has a family to feed and says, today, I'm going to catch the, the gazelle. Today, I'm going to provide for my family. So he started teaching me like that. And he starts saying this. If you look at both of the animals, they have a purpose to wake up in the morning. One of them to keep his life and the other one to keep the life of him and his family by catching it. And so he told me, what is your purpose? You have to find a purpose that helps you wake up in the morning and go in and, and get it. What is it that moves you forward? So that's when I said, well, boxing. He says, well, he says, you can make a difference on what on whatever you're doing. Always keep on, on mind that you have a purpose for a greater good. So I told him, what if I'm defending some, some other kid who's been bullied? He clearly said, he says, there's many things you can do. He started telling me, you can just grab your friend and pull him out of that situation, or and he says, "What if, I said because if I try to talk to a bully, they did not work. It happens all the time." He says, "I know, but just grab your friend and walk with them." And I said, "What if I can't?" He says, "Well, people who slaps people always slaps people that do not slaps back. In other words, he says bullies are not looking for a fair fight; they're looking for a victim." And he says, "If you have to engage and there's no other way around, he says, just you you make sure." You don't become the lion that that kills for sport. And I didn't know what he meant by that until one day when I was defending this kid and this guy was bullying him. He was bigger than him and, of course, bully bigger than me. But since I was a boxer, I, I remember beat him up by defending that kid. And I kept bullying the other kid, going like, hey, if, you, if I heard, you know, you bully somebody else and I approach him and try to pretend to slap him and the kid run away from him. That's when I remember what Rafael was trying to tell me. Not being a bully, I have become that. What I'm protecting the other kid from, I have become a bully. So that's what he was trying to teach me, and he noticed that I was getting really depressed because my dad just passed, my mom she just left me behind, she abandoned me. Also, also my coach, uh, Captain Herrera, he wants nothing to do with me. So I was extremely depressed, and that's what that's when that's when he said, and that helped me a lot. He said, you have to find your purpose. You have to find a purpose, and I'm here to help you find it.
1: And the things he was teaching you were very different from the things your father wanted to instill in you.
0: Yes. For example, my father, okay, he had a, he, in his mind, he had this idea of what a real man is, right? How you forge a real man. And, and in his mind, it's a real man. It's that doesn't show any emotions because emotion, showing emotions is a sign of weakness. You don't try not to smile. Even on the pictures, if you see on any of the pictures of my parents or me when I was a kid, there's nothing. Just They used to say that it, it's not real. Laughing, smiling, that's not you. Or crying. My dad used to say that only women cry. You know, cry, it's for for sissies or or women. So you don't cry. Rafael, he used to teach me differently. Like showing emotion, it's not a sign of weakness, but it's it's a sign that you're human and it's perfectly normal to be human. There's nothing wrong with that. Or he says cry. It's not a sign of weakness because real men share tears. Real men loves. Real men feels kindness. Real men uh, protects. Real men shows love. Real men smiles. Rafa was raising me that way.
1: So when there's a little bit of conflict between what Rafa is saying to you and what your dad is saying to you, how do you know who to believe or how did you know who to listen to?
0: With my father... uh, he was teaching me that there was a part of me inside that wanted to please my father because I was always fighting for my my father's love and attention. I always wanted his his a thumbs up if you want, if you will. I always wanted something from him, a pen on the back or something that said good job. I was always fighting for it. But with Raphael, I felt that I was loved and I felt that I didn't need it to compete for attention or compete for love. It was this conflict in me, whether do this, uh, you know, because it's your father, right? You want to please him or you, you're going to do this because you feel like like it's the right? It felt natural. It felt normal to me to do those things. So I started listening more to Rafa because of that. Of course, I was punished w- from my father.
1: I mean, the manhood he was teaching you and your older brothers got you abused and beat up and some of that stuff. Right? And your dad never
0: protected you from those things. That's another great point right there. So that actually played a really important role on, on me thinking differently because if I was going to be a man like my brothers, I don't, I didn't want to be a bully. I didn't want to be somebody who takes advantage of others. I don't, I didn't want to be like them. So that really, Raphael really helped me open my eyes to what a real man is. So I didn't want to scream at my, you know, my wife, like my mom had no say. She has to obey my my dad blindly or, you know, pay the consequences. So, and the same thing with me, that really played a huge role for me to think differently and become a man more, more according to what Raphael was telling me versus what my father was telling me.
1: Because that view of manhood that your brother, your dad, and your brothers had is really not, not protecting the weak, but exploiting the weak where Raphael is saying, no, love protects, love cares about somebody. And it really, Takes care of the weaker person, it doesn't take advantage of them.
0: I got a lot of advice from my friend. One time I got really confused because he started kind of like distancing himself from me. Also, all these bodyguards, well, he called them his boys. All of his, uh, not bodyguards, but the people who was with him, there were about 30 of them. But the closest one were about 12 or or 14 guys, always with him, the same guys. He really trusted them and they trust him. He kept training me, but he, start keeping it just like that, like trainer, trainee relationship. He stopped taking me places to patrol and stuff like that. I learned that there was a lot of attacks against him. In my mind, I thought that he, you know, this guy didn't, doesn't like me anymore. So I asked him, I asked him one day and I said, Hey, what's wrong with you? I said, uh, you know, you know, you don't want me to patrol anymore. The guy said, you don't want, they don't want to take me because you don't want to. What, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? What happened? And all of a sudden, he just looked at me. He says, I cannot tell you much, but because I love you, I have to separate myself from you. Later on, I learned that the drug cartels, the way they kill his family, they will kill anything that he loves. Oh, my gosh. But in a sense, he was protecting me from drug drug cartels or crooked police. As soon as they find that out, that he has an affection towards me, they will try to come in and kill me. So that's why he did what he did. Yes, he did. And that really hurt me. So he didn't really talk to you about it.
1: He just kind of started putting you to the side.
0: He, everything started by him not showing up for training and also not taking me on patrols. Uh, it started uh, little by little fading as I was growing older. I thought in my mind that he didn't like me or I did something wrong. Uh, I thought I offended him by saying something. To the point that I don't really see him anymore. Sometimes the guys from the platoon will stop by and, and say, make sure I was okay. Or sometimes to train me, some of them, but not him. Which was, I thought it was really weird. So I, in my mind, I thought that he didn't love me anymore. Or he didn't like me. Or I must have done something to offend him.
1: Was that the problem? It wasn't. So how, what, what did you find out?
0: What I find out that the, the reason he was, he was doing that because of the opposite, actually. Because he loved me. Uh, he didn't want to lose me because on his line of work, he was a captain of the army. He was the type of man that my father will call a man. He would not show any emotions to anybody, but to me only when we're like alone, he'll give me a hug or he give me a pet on the head or say good work or you're doing great uh, or tell me that you, you have a great future. I didn't know that point that he actually lost his uh, daughter, his wife, and his two children. And uh, somehow I reminded him uh, to one uh, to one of his children. I didn't know that, though, so that he kind of took me under his wing because of that.
1: One that was murdered, right? Right. So you reminded him of his murdered son. You think? Right. And that just kind of made a tender relationship. But then he started distancing himself from you, so that had to be confusing,
0: very and painful too. What I learned was that. He started doing that because by distancing himself from me, he was protecting me from the drug cartels.
1: How'd you find that out?
0: There was one attempt against my life because of that to, to get to him. One time, one of his trusted men, I trusted this man, he came in by himself and he says, oh, you know what, Uh, Captain wants to talk to you. I said, really? He said, yeah, 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 he wants you you to come in because there you have a fight coming up. So I was like, oh, great. So I didn't even tell my parents, I didn't say anything. I just say, let's go. So I jumped on on one of the truck, it was a military truck. And I jumped on the back and he says, no, 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 no. don't go on the back, get in the front. I didn't know why he was doing that. I thought it was weird because they never let me ride in the front. So he's, they stay low so nobody can see you. And I, I thought, okay, he was trying to do me a favor to get in the front. I thought it was like an upgrade to me. But no, he was trying to make sure nobody see me going with it, because he had a plan. We drove probably like two hours through the mountains. And I thought it was really weird. And I, and I asked them and I said, wait, where are we going? And at first he wasn't, he wasn't hostile with his answers. He said, oh, you'll see. And then as I started questioning more and more, he started being more hostile, more like, he say, uh, to the point where he says, shut up, we're almost there. So I thought it was really weird for him treating me like this. And so I asked him, what is your problem? Why you talk to me like this? Where are we going? It was already dark when we came in and, and we came in to, to a part of the mountains near a road. And there were two trailers in their park, like for one of those 18 wheelers, there were two of them. Uh, there was somebody else there waiting for him. When we came in, he said, get out. And, and I said, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere. What are we doing here? At that moment, I knew something was wrong. In my mind, I was like, I should have ro- jumped out of the truck when I, when, you know, back there, when I had the chance. Now, my chances are are very slim here. I knew that something was really wrong. So he came around the the other side. I uh, locked the door on that side, and he got very upset. So he ran to the other side, and I tried to lock the other side. But the other guy was closer to the door, so he opened it. So he went from the other side and unlocked the door. And the other guy grabbed me by the by the arm, and he pushed me out uh, out of the the uh, the truck. And I started fighting the guy. I started kicking him, and I started punching him. And I was trying to go for his gun. I could see his gun, and I was trying to uh, go for it. The other guy wasn't dressed as military and I didn't recognize him. So they both of them grabbed me by the hand. They opened up this, one of this big trailer, the trailer for the 18 uh, wheeler. There was no car attached to it just by themselves. They opened it, they threw me up there and then they closed the door and I could hear them, you know, locking, I could hear the sounds of locks and uh, outside. And I was screaming at them to let me out. I was very, very, very afraid. I knew that I was gonna die. I knew that they were going to kill me. There was a lot of kids being lost on that area. A lot of the kids were kidnapped there, and when they find them, they, they'll they find them with no intestines, not nothing inside. Later I learned that they use them as, as uh, if you will, as vessels to transport drugs to the United States or other states, and pretend the kids were sleeping. So on my mind, I knew that that's what they were going to do to me. I know I was already dead. I was really scared, and and I was really afraid, and I I started screaming. And I I keep thinking, and I was reflecting there. My father is dead. My mother left me. Captain wants nothing to do with me. Now what? I said I have nothing. I might as well be dead. I have nothing to fight for. I spent there crying probably like I don't know, maybe maybe like two hours, and all of a sudden I hear steps behind me, and I turn around, and and there was there he was, my friend, Rafa. He was standing right there and I could see him. I could see him very well. And I could see very well around me. And and it's inside, it was really dark. I couldn't see anything before. All of a sudden I could see. When I saw him, I was so happy to see him. I'm telling you, I ran up to him. I hugged him and he picked me up. He embraced me. And when he embraced me, I knew I was gonna be okay. All of a sudden the fear, all the fear I had disappeared. I wasn't afraid anymore. I knew he, he always had answers for everything. He knew know what to say. He know what, where everything was. You couldn't lose anything that he wouldn't know where it was. I asked him and, and when I saw him and I said, well, I said, we're in trouble now. First I thought, when did they got, get you? At first I, I thought he would get captured. He, uh, he made it clear that he, uh, he was there because of me, not because he was brought there. I was really close to a, there was a little hole because he was kind of hard to breathe after a while. So I used to, I used to put my, my, my face close to the little hole. You could see out, uh, you could, you could see a little bit of, uh, outside. And, uh, by then it was kind of, it was kind of dark, so you could see a little bit of the moonlight. So you could see a little bit. And he said, see that little hole right there. I said, yes. He says, uh, over here, there's uh, old batteries, car batteries. So he says, go up there and, and grab one, pick it up. So I went over there and I picked it up. He always helped me do everything, but this time I had I did everything myself. I don't I don't know why. I didn't even question him. I didn't even say, why don't you help me? No, I just, I was doing what he was saying because I knew everything he was doing, he knows what he was doing. So I trusted him. So I remember picking picking up the battery and he said, now smash it right there. Will you see the little hole? Yeah. Just... Just smash it in there. So I picked that up and I smashed it. He says, again, I smashed it again. He says, again, I smashed it again. And the hole got a little bit bigger. And then he said, oh, look. Then he pointed out to the floor and he said, see that piece of metal right there? Yes, bring it. So I brought it in and he says, work around the battery and open it up. Back then they were not like sealed like now, you know, they were like open up where you can pour water on them. So he says, open it up. So I pry it open and he said, now spill the acid on the hole where the hole is. So on the whole area, I spill the acid on the area. And then he said, go grab another one. And I did the same. And I, I remember pouring three batteries there. And then I said, now what? He says, now we wait. And then he says, let's come over here to this corner where, so so we don't smell much the acid, okay? And when we got there, he says, oh, you're thirsty or hungry? I said, well, yeah. He says, oh, here. Over there, getting a bottle of water, having a bottle of water, it's a delicacy. You don't have that because you don't have money to buy it. You get a container and you put your water there. So he produces a bottle of water. He says, here. So he gave me a bottle of water and I, and I drank it. I drink it all. And and then I said, I apologized to him and I said, I'm sorry. He says, why? I didn't left anything for you. He says, no, 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 this one's for you. He turns around and goes back to the corner and picks up one of those plastic plates. It wasn't disposable, it was just hard plastic. It was green. I remember it was like light green plate. And then there were three tacos. And then he hands them to me and he says, here, these are for you. And I said, what about you? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, don't worry about me, don't worry about me. I don't need it. These are for you. So I ate them and they were, I'm telling you, they were so good. And there wasn't anything anything fancy on it. There was just egg, eggs, and beans. That's it. But they were so good. After that, we talked for a little while. And after we talked, he started telling me on the conversation why I was there. I asked him, How do you know that? He says, Well, because God cares more than the intention behind the action than the action itself. And I said, What do you mean? He says, God knows that these people's intentions were evil. That's why I'm here. And then he reminded me too about this. He said this. He said, "If you give some a cent to somebody," and I interrupted him and I said, "What is a cent going to do? That doesn't do anything." He says, "Here's the beauty of it: if you give it to somebody with good intentions or with the, with all of your heart, God appreciates it more than if you give somebody a million dollars in order to be recognized." So I was like, "Oh, okay." To me, I was like, "All right." So that's why you're here. He says, "Yeah, that's why I'm here because God knows these people's intentions are not good, so I'm here for you." Okay, after we finished talking, he said, see that battery over there? There were two more batteries there. I said, yes. I said, you want me to open them? He said, no, no, no. Those you don't open. Those you're going to pick them up and you're going to smash them on the area where we dropped the, uh, the acid. Yeah, he said, the acid, uh, it's, it, it's going to weaken the wood now. And it's, it uh, just keep hitting it. And I hit it and hit it until the, the battery went through the hole. And then I grabbed the other battery and he says, now use the battery. Don't throw it. Just hit the sides to make the hole bigger. I did that. And he says, okay, that's big enough now. So he went down the hole first. And then he says, come here. He reached over with his hands, went down head first. I don't know why I went down head first. He grabbed me by, by the armpits and and he pulled me down. We crawled down under, from under the trailer. Once we got out, he says, we're going to go through the mountains. So, we started running through the mountains, and I could see very well. Uh, he was always right in front of me. He w- we were running. He, we were running. He, uh, he was running in front of me, and I was running right behind me. I mean, right in front of me. And I didn't feel tired or anything. And we, we ran for, probably for about two hours. We saw these like three trucks. Uh, I saw. Th- you can see the three sets of lights at night coming in. And he says, "That's Captain Herrera. Let's go over there and plug it down." He said he's looking for you. So we ran towards it towards him and we caught him off on the front and we flagged him down. And when I said we, we, I saw him also flagging them. I saw him waving his hands. And I was waving my hands. And in the front, it was a jeep, a military jeep. So it was Captain Herrera. He jumped out of the car with his gun, with actually his guns drawn. And everybody, you know, they set up a perimeter, a military perimeter. And they were there watching and and I said, what's wrong with these people? I thought, what's wrong with these people? When he saw me, he hugged me, he, he picked me up and he says, I'm so glad you're fine. He says, I will never forgive myself if something happens to, to you because of me. At that moment, he explained to me what happened and, and, and he and I understood why he was pushing me away, not because he didn't like me, but because he loved me to protect me. So these people were pay, pay this guy named Hector to, to take me into that place. So he, so he can go ahead, go go over there, try to get me so they can kill him and ambush him.
1: So they were using you as bait to get Captain Herrera to come and find you and get you. And they were de- going to try and kill him.
0: Correct. I told him and I said, well, he said, I'm glad you're OK. And I said, hey, I told him what happened. I said, Hector called me. He said, you're waiting for me. And he says, I know, I know. Don't worry about him. He said, he's not going to bother you anymore. I never saw Hector after that.
1: So knowing that they had laid a trap with you as the bait, he was still going there to rescue you.
0: Right. And when I asked him, how how, how did you know that they they had me? And he says, well, somebody told me to look for him. And I said, who? And when he started telling me, he says, I don't know, some guy. He says uh, that they saw you with them and I didn't send them for you. So that was suspicious, but I'm pretty sure it was Raphael who told them.
1: What do you think when you look back? Do you think this was some kind of supernatural thing, or do you just think it was a, a guy up there who just took an interest in you?
0: I think it was an angel. I truly believe that.
1: If he wasn't an angel, I don't know how else to explain Rafa's presence in Lewis's life. But this was their last encounter. He continued with his training and boxing, and at 16, he had the opportunity to come to America for international competition as a Golden Glove boxer.
0: After fighting in Mexico and uh, fighting locally and, and, and then making my way up to the state and then nationals, I got an opportunity to fight here in the U.S. I got a visa to fight for Golden Gloves. And also there was another opportunity to find, they call it Mexico against the U.S. They do that a lot with other countries. You have to have international experience in order to fight for the Olympics. So I came here to the U.S. to get the international experience. I was actually expected to lose. So they gave me a visa for one week. And then I fought that week and won. They extended for another week.
1: The first time he stays six months and returns when his visa is up. Soon he's invited for more competition, and getting some amazing opportunities, he overstays his second visa.
0: The beauty of being at certain level in boxing is that you meet a lot of people. You get to spar with uh, a lot of professionals, spar with uh, many of them. I spar with Oscar De La Hoya. I also spar with Robert Garcia from Oxnard. Spar, I spar with Maromero Paez. I spar with Tito Trinidad from uh, Puerto Rico. I also sparred with a lot of boxers from Mexico, but none of them made it all the way to the top that they were containers. I really enjoyed that, talking to them and learning from them.
1: So how long had you been overstaying your visa?
0: I overstayed it for like four years.
1: What led you to go back to Mexico?
0: My mom needed a car. So uh, what I did, I bought a car here and I drove it with my brother all the way down to Mexico. I was there for like two weeks. If you stay any longer, you know, the cartels start noticing that stuff because they're all over the place.
1: Now we're back where we left this story in episode one on the night of December 19th, 1994. After a harrowing night with the federales in Tijuana, he dries off by a fire after crawling out of the sewage. He finds a scrap of paper stuck to his hand whose message warmed him more on the inside than the fire did on the outside. And then he hears a voice for the second time that night. Next time on My Friend Lewis.
0: I don't know what time it was by then. All of a sudden, I heard this voice, the same voice that that told me, stop when the police officers were chasing me. That same voice, he he called me and he said, come to me but he called me from beyond the fence. I hear it three times, and I knew that it was my father calling me. I remember running towards the wall because I was crying. I was crying and running. And I was screaming, yes, father, yes, yes, I'll come to you. I could hear the people behind me going like, the stinky has gone mad, the stinky has gone mad, look at him. He thinks he can climb the wall. Look at it.
1: My friend Lewis is a production of Blue Sheep Media in association with livestream.org Copyright 2021 by Wayne Jacobson. All rights reserved. Produced by Ken Joy for Ken Joy Media.